John, in case there's any new listeners who are tuning in to our 147th episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, too little, too late. Now I don't want them. Now I'm like, get out. All right. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm still drawing new listeners, so I want to ask you. Mm-hmm. This podcast is nominally called Aspiring Snobs, where we aspire to snobdom and uh, a higher echelon of society. Indeed. So what are you doing to nourish that kind of snobdom? Are you uh, listening to classical music? Are you seeking out films prior to, I don't know, say 1960 or so? Uh, I find I'm drinking a lot more Hepperweissens and German-named beers. I think that's very okay. uh, that's very erudite of me. You know, yeah. no Coors Light. Or the fact that you pronounced it man. wrong is is very, it's very uh, indicative that you. I are... pronounced it like any good American would. So that's that's on them, not me. Okay. Sure. I mean, I pronounce it Verdon. I don't care. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. In case anybody tuned into our last episode, that's a great and all. Not important. Mm. Me, on the other hand, oh, I yeah. am classic Greg Mantel setup. Here's what I really am visiting the. About. Yes, exactly. Here I'm visiting the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Ooh. And watching a night at the movies. <laughs> at the Walt Disney Concert Hall? No, this was not at the Walt Disney Concert Hall. This was at the Hollywood Bowl. Oh. Uh, my favorite venue in the greater Los Angeles area. Uh, last year I got to see my favorite band there. Now I get to see the, the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And I got to see it presented by the great John Williams. Mm. That's the only yeah. way you can really get uh, butts into seats, sadly, is you have to kind of pair it with a movie. Like, yeah, sure, we can play Brahms, we can play Rock. <laughs> or, or a five-time Oscar winner. <laughs> yeah, that could, that too. I mean, I'm just yeah, talking who's... about, uh, for our local season in San Diego, the San, San Diego Orchestra would do, like, uh, they did, um, I think it's A Wonderful Life, they did Metropolis, they 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 were also quite familiar with the, this kind of show. Okay, that's what I basically wanted to ask you, is that I have the privilege of watching the Philharmonic at this incredible outdoor venue, mm-hmm. and being it presented by this Again, a lion in winter, 87 years young, and he could still, you know, host an evening. Uh, do you have the same privilege out there? I mean, what what outdoor venues do the people in San Diego have to look forward to? I mean, unfortunately, Greg, the L.A. Philharmonic's uh, current conductor, Gustavo Dudamel, is yeah. actually a celebrity in his own right, and still young enough to actually be conducting. So I think you're actually yeah. missing out <laughs> on not seeing him. So That's true. We missed him. Instead, we saw David Newman... Uh, son of Alfred Newman, not to be confused with Alfred E. Newman, the now, the uh, mascot of the now defunct Mad TV or and current, me, Mad Magazine. Yeah, yeah, currently running for president under the uh, moniker Mayor Pete. Yeah, heyo, um, hey, jokes. Remember that, folks. Yes, folks. Y'all remember jokes? But we saw David Newman actually conduct most of the show again. John Newman, 87 years young. You can't expect him to conduct an, uh, the entire show. So he I mean, came out, presented the first song. It's amazing he even has time to score Star Wars movies these days. Exactly, yeah. And, I mean, the only slip-up, the only, uh, let's call it Joe Biden moment, uh, even though Donald Trump has been doing it for four years now, mm-hmm. <laughs> was that uh, when, he actually, when we finally got to the Star Wars theme, mm-hmm. he called it Episode 1, when it is, in fact, um, actually, it's Episode 4. Oh. <laughs> he should have known better. Yes. Whatever. He was ripping off Gustav's Holtz of Planets anyway. Yeah. So who cares? Not quite not quite on the level of Joe Biden uh, forgetting the president <laughs> under which he served, but I'm pretty close if you ask me. <laughs> Greg, he just forgot to take his brain medicine. That's all. <laughs> yes, that's it. Yeah. Which is the one medicine you don't want to forget. Yeah, it's shocking that Elizabeth 
Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders don't need brain medicine, but that's fine. We'll <laughs> ignore that. Who's who's the most electable? <laughs> who's the most likable? Who do you want to sit down and have a beer with? Exactly. <laughs> I judge all my candidates by who I want to sit down and have a beer with. Um, <laughs> the one who complains about what's on Fox and Friends this morning and won't drink the beer along with you, or... <laughs> The doddering old racist um, who needs to correct his entire record up until this point. Mm, I, I don't know. It's yeah. it's a coin flip. It sure is. Mm. <laughs> but uh, poor David Newman. I mean, he had to present like he had to present "Hooray for Hollywood" and a Western medley, which I could just feel the crowd was not into. They brought their toy lightsabers. They they wanted him to play the hits. I mean, and, and also "Hooray for Hollywood." It's like, what is this? The Oscars? Like, come on, people! That puts people I to know. sleep. Yes, and unlike uh, like say "Night at the Movies," where a live orchestra plays the score along as the movie is playing, mm-hmm. half the songs it was, uh, there was no accompanying montage, and there was that. And the one that was playing during Hooray for Hollywood had no movies produced past 1960. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so you could kind of tell the target audience. Like, they were like, yo, do you remember Some Like It Hot? That was a fun, raunchy, <laughs> they raunchy jaunt them. down to the cinemas where, <laughs> where nobody swore or <laughs> revealed their genitalia or... <laughs> They don't make them like they used to. Yeah, this does definitely seem like you might as well have just tried to go to the Oscars. Like it sounds like just the orchestra from the Oscars. To some extent, yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you had a good time. Apparently. Yes, indeed I did, and I just wanted to brag about it uh, in the opening of our show. And now you can't stop me because it's not coming out. Hmm. This is this is also true. That would be really weird if you cut to like this point right here. Like imagine oh, if you be- just started the episode like right here. The episode for what you were talking about, which is Aspiring Snobs, a movie podcast about two brothers trying to fill out their film bona fides. Exactly. We're trying to fill out our film bona fides, mm-hmm. in which we see movies that uh, generally belong in the film canon, mm. but we haven't seen yet. And we're going to talk about a film that I'm not sure if it belongs in the film canon because the film is technically not finished yet. Yes. Um with the passing of the late, great Richard Williams, we decided mm-hmm. to, uh, I guess, basically uh, pirate a copy of his <laughs> unfinished masterpiece. Uh, his This movie holds the record for, I think, the longest production time of any film from, like, uh, fruition to um, final product, supposedly, even though it is kind of technically unfinished. It was recut. It was reconjiggered. We'll get into the whole history of it. But, guys. Exactly. Yes. So, way longer than Richard Linklater's Boyhood, and also going to be way longer than his, what's his, Merrily We Go Merrily Along? Merrily We Go Along, yeah. Exactly. exactly. So, eat shit, Richard Linklater. <laughs> Your movies suck, and F you, all right? <laughs> Richard Linklater goes, go fuck himself. Yes, exactly. This is the impossible masterpiece that took <laughs> several decades to finish. Yes, because we finally got to catch up with The Thief and the Cobb.
first, let's celebrate the life of the late, great Richard Williams. John, can you mm -hmm. uh, tell us who Richard Williams was? Well, he was an animator by trade. He's Canadian, but he uh, eventually worked his way up to animator for the Disney Corporation. And he won several Oscars, specifically for his work with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Another movie we revisited for this podcast, Shameless Plug. Why don't you yeah. go check out that one? Fair point. So... This is a guy who was really in the trenches, like, actually animating movies. Like, uh, Walt Disney, yes, he created the design for Mickey Mouse and the little rabbit on which it's based, but the, that doesn't matter. <laughs> Richard Williams was renowned for his technique. Uh, mm -hmm. You know the Pink Panther? That was his creation. Uh, <laughs> the, yes. All those opening title sequences for the Pink Panther movies, that was him. And if you really do appreciate uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit... That was his incredible skill as well. But for about a 30-year period, he wanted to produce his magnum opus mm -hmm. that was the movie we're looking at now, The Thief, the Thief and the Cobbler. He has set out with a goal of making the greatest, most elaborate animated film of all time. So <laughs> the fact that it ended kind of in spectacular failure is such a surprise. It's... I know, I know. I, I apologize for laughing, but <laughs> like a lot of creative follies that we've seen on this, on this podcast, he essentially wanted to do the greatest animated movie he can with the most ambitious you know production design and budget that he could possibly do mm -hmm. so he did it on and off for many many years uh following the success of who framed roger rabbit he actually got with a hollywood studio and it looked like he was going to do it but after several missed deadlines it fell into different receiverships and corporations and ownerships and, and now it's in the state that it is on YouTube, which exactly. is the version that we watched. Yeah, the version we we, uh, we watched is called the Recobbled Cut. Yeah, um, which has a lot, like pretty much the most collected scenes that are possibly recoverable from it. So there's a lot of animatics still. You're also neglecting the fact that when it was almost ready, uh, it was getting completely buried by Aladdin. Uh, yeah. it was a, it was officially released in 1993, only a year separated from Aladdin. So obviously Aladdin overshadowed it quite a bit. Yeah, and I want to debunk this myth that it had this long production cycle, but then oh, Aladdin came in like you know the evil, the evil Jeffrey Katzenberg or Michael Eisner said like, hey, we're gonna steal this wonderful creative concept. The similarities to Aladdin are superficial. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, it, basically it is. there is a a Grand Vizier character that is blue and resembles the genie and is evil and diabolical in the same way Jafar is, but that's about it. That's the mm -hmm. extent to which the similarities go. I mean, and also, like, if we're if we're um, reinterpreting, like, Arabic folktale, yes, all the trappings are going to be there. The treacherous vizier, the street rat, the, you know, lowly character from the streets who's basically... Yeah, the minarets. The, yeah. Exactly. So, uh, again, I don't think there was any kind of evil dealings on behalf of the Disney Corporation. Mm -hmm. Now, having said all that, <laughs> knowing the history of this film, um, yes. it is quite a technical masterpiece. You cannot deny that. Um, mm -hmm. It is a brilliant-looking film. But also, yes, for the second week in a row, we've found a movie where the kind of creative vision probably got a f too far away from the creator. This is a movie that is kind of unwieldy at times, and let's be honest, a little overindulgent. But personally, for me, I loved it. I loved the crap out of it. I couldn't wait to watch it again, and I almost watched it again before this podcast. So, yeah, okay. I had a lot of fun watching it, and I'm so glad I did. And I think this is a, this is a masterpiece. All Greg, right, Sean, I'm, explain why I'm you're glad wrong. you enjoyed it. Yes, because much like <laughs> I, 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 I see, I'm glad I mentioned Who Framed Roger Rabbit, because I think we'll be on opposite ends, much like we were on that film as well. <laughs> yes. So 
I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> I will not begrudge you for enjoying it. However, I'm going to push back on you on, on one word, based on, sing, on a singular word that has ruined our collective culture and society, um, mm-hmm. which I believe many other podcasters will agree with. And that word is market. Mm. Because the reason that this film went into several different owners and receiverships and corporations is because there is no market for this film. Mm-hmm. Richard this Williams. An, this is an art film, first and foremost. Yes. So if you go in expecting an art film, yes, I believe you will enjoy it. However, like Richard Williams's influences are so broad and so all over this movie, namely kind of the Looney, Looney Tunes, but also like just wonderfully animated sequences, and to put them all in one singular vision was his folly. That was his creative fall, I, I feel. Mm-hmm. Because we have a, a Looney Tunes vision of a thief trying to steal three balls off a minaret. Uh, why those three balls are so important doesn't matter, right? That's explained in voiceover like 20 minutes earlier, and we don't have time for that. But to put that in the same, in the same vision as a sequence where that is reminiscent of NRS Thompson's description of lizard people at Circus Circus in, in Las Vegas. Again, it's a folly. It, do, it doesn't quite work. And I just had such a hard time wrapping my head around this creative vision because I'm like, who's it for other than the creator? Other than Richard Williams, like, again, his ambition to create the greatest animated movie of all time mm-hmm. and just... Ex- completely exercise his prowess for the benefit of nobody because that's that's my problem it's for nobody and and that's where the word mark comes in because this this film is for nobody but him so like what audience will you have to pay for it other than as you said a museum audience who wants to appreciate the craft of what he's putting on screen who's it really for and i don't feel he found anybody in that but uh, unless you're jonathan and you really did (laughs) appreciate the craft of it. So, John, explain explain a little further what you really found um, enticing in this decadent vision that he had. <laughs> well, again, I used the word overindulgent earlier, and like you said, this yeah. is a huge, massive hodgepodge of inspirations. Yes, it does have the classic kind of Looney Tunes-esque spirit to it. Um, yeah. It's very much, even though you said there is no market for it, it is very much pitched at children. Uh, it starts with like a very storybook narration, but it also, yes, this is the creative vision of a flower child from the 60s, so it's also very psychedelic. I don't think it's a coincidence that um, a lot of the backgrounds feel very Monty Python-esque, and a lot of the characters feel very uh, Yellow Submarine as well. Um, yes. I think there's a heavy British uh, 60s mod influence as well. But going back to that whole kind of Looney Tunes-esque inspiration for it one of the other interesting aspects of the movie is it's how it plays with geometry like yeah. how the characters kind of move in space and it's very Rube Goldberg like and also kind of optical illusions there's a huge sequence where um, the thief who's trying to steal these minarets steal something from the palace and the cobbler goes after him but the way the palace is kind of set up it's like an MC Escher drawing it's like all these geometric patterns and angles that they don't even know where the stairs are anymore and they walk over a patch of floor which is a tile but then they go over in the next patch of floor and that's actually a huge hole so it's it's extremely clever and just endlessly fascinating to watch now again is the story very compelling no absolutely not <laughs> well exactly that's when i would stop you fascinating <laughs> yes so it draws your eye the amount of skill that richard williams had mm-hmm. and let's let's 
um, not dispose of that, but get that out of the way uh, explicitly. John, you ready to talk about frame rates? Let's talk about frame rates. Well, I don't want to get into the technical aspect. All right, yes, we could really get into it. The sound mixing is terrible. But like, I, again, well, no, is... yeah, it's an unfinished film, obviously. But I yeah. want to get more into the visual aspect because mm-hmm. Richard Williams had this incredible skill based on the amount that he would animate every frame of a movie. Mm-hmm. Now, every movie that you watch is presented at 24 frames per second mm-hmm. displayed in that sequence. Like, literally every movie you see is animated. It's just, it's a bunch of still images chopped together. Like a horse and they're galloping across the... You've seen them. Yes. Come on. Good reference to Edward Moorbridge. Um, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so every movie you see is that. Now, that is because... Uh, 24 frames was the amount, was the very minimum amount that they could present sound with a moving image. So our 24 frame per second standard is out of laziness. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of animated films have taken that laziness even further by <laughs> doing only 12 frames per second or 10 frames per second. Mm-hmm. And in movie nomenclature, that's called... Uh, animating on the twos like every two frames mm-hmm. and as far as your eye can tell like yeah it looks animated just the re- just the way a regular film would uh richard williams was so ambitious he's like no i'm animating on the ones every frame of film that you see is an animated frame and it does elicit some gorgeously animated sequences uh, mm-hmm. i'm thinking in particular the one you just mentioned where the titular cobbler chases the titular thief through a, a geometric phrase in which he slides through this uh, checkerboard pattern and through legs and, and mm-hmm. all this stuff. Yeah, the wonderful, sumptuous for the eye. The problem is, and the folly is, like, A, he could never finish it in time for his producers <laughs> and his financiers. The other problem is, is that if if every shot is special, none of it is special. Oh, you think that there's no downtime. Yeah. Exactly. It's be- well, not downtime. It's because like it just became too much for my brain to absorb. Mm. It's the same problem that we had with like I know Peter Jackson experimented with forty-eight frames per second. So you're literally absorbing your brain is literally absorbing twice the information at at a singular time. And yes, like it looks so much smoother and so much more high definition because you're literally showing twice the frames of animation. But it overwhelms your brain, <laughs> and, and that's the case here. When you have, like, um, I'm going to uh, bring up a moment where these three balls that are prophesized to protect this whole kingdom uh, inspired by Arabian Nights, mm-hmm. um, once those balls disappear, thanks to the thief, the sultan in the movie goes, like, ah, and the camera, like, whips around, and I and I was wondering, why? Like, why is it doing that? Mm. And maybe that's what he didn't justify enough with the story. So, John, explain the story to us a little bit. Okay, so the story is, there is a uh, cobbler named Tact, as the uh, Vincent Price, well, actually, no, I don't think Vincent Price did the voiceover, but there's a little bit of voiceover in the beginning, and again, going back yeah. to the fact that this was a, this was a drug-fused haze, it was like, yeah. <laughs> ah, so stories are portals into other universes, <laughs> so uh, they introduce us to Tack, the cobbler, the titular cobbler, and the thief. Yeah, not Tact. Yeah, not Tact. He's not Whatever. polite. It's because Tack, because he yes, tacked. Yes, he tacks his shoes. Yeah. Um, and then the thief, who will go unnamed. The thief is... He's important to the story, but kind of outside it. And I yeah. and that's what I also kind of appreciated. He's more of a agent of chaos for the movie. <laughs> but also he's like a buffoon as well. So his yeah. main goal is just to steal shit. 
like that is ultimately his only motivation and so once he sees these you know three balls sitting atop the minaret like yeah that's when he's like oh that's my prize and so everything the rest of the story revolves around that but he's not an active participant in the rest of the story besides no. the fact that he's just kind of like there trying to steal shit essentially he's our he serves two functions a wily e coyote mm-hmm to basically try to, like, uh, again, Sisyphusian task of, like, trying to steal stuff and keeps getting thwarted. Mm-hmm. Um, but not having the natural, at least for me, not the act- natural inclination to actually get these three balls. Like, <laughs> and, and we'll get to the ending later. But um, at least Wiley Coyote, like, you understand animal nature out in this valley like to <laughs> and this endless desert, desert. Yeah. yeah this endless desert to catch the roadrunner i didn't understand why the thief like had to steal stuff but so he serves as as that function at least from an entertainer's perspective and also our like second storyline our meanwhile back at the ranch mm-hmm. kind of uh thing to cut away to when we're when we get bored with the uh, cobbler's storyline yeah so the thief tries to steal from the poor cobbler um as a result, uh, they get pushed into the middle of the street and accidentally run into Zigzag the Vizier, as yes. voiced by Vincent Price, <laughs> who speaks in rhyming couplets. Yes, John. Uh, John, I'm glad you didn't end on Vizier, because <laughs> you would have stretched this movie's thin veneer of silly rhymes that need to be tortured, <laughs> which sounded like, tra- na- like nails on a chalkboard to this uh, uh, host uh, something with tortured. Okay. Um, I did not like it. I did I not liked like it. it. I thought it was cute. I thought, okay. and I thought Vincent Price did a great job. I thought it was very cute. Like again, like I, I was able to separate myself a little bit and remind myself that yes, this is technically aimed for children, and it is like again going back to he's an exquisitely designed character. The way his like fingers have like extra joints just for extra rings as well as he kind yeah. of like coaxes and and much like Jafar and Aladdin you know it's not just the fact that he's like a, uh, a false staffian kind of like evil vizier but also he does magic so that yeah. gives you an excuse for him to like you know do flash and pop and circumstance and stuff like that so the greatest king of all the earth this lowborn cobbler of no worth attacked me in the square today Shall we take his head away? What? No. But what has he done? Attacked me. Really? Yes. You great fool! (laughs) At the moment, Daddy, I need a cobbler. Uh, uh, yes, of course. Of course. Oh, rose of the land, your slightest whim is my command. Yeah, he's he's essentially yeah. If people complain about Disney being unoriginal with their vision for Aladdin, mm-hmm. he's somewhat a combination of Jafar's motivation mm-hmm. because he wants to marry the princess to in order to gain power, but also he's blue in color like the genie, and it has these magical abilities. Exactly. And so he sentences Tack to death. Um, the princess spares him. The princess's name is Yum Yum, which uh, did kind of yeah. get a little grating after a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, zigzag and Yum Yum. It's, it's amazing that this movie wouldn't resonate with audiences. But <laughs> you know, Greg, those are just classic Arabic names, okay? Zigzag and Yum Yum. <laughs> This whole movie's cultural appropriation. Just get it, get it out of here. Okay. 
So Zigzag, he wants to take over the kingdom. He wants to marry the princess, but obviously he's not capable of doing it himself. So he tries to use the fact that the balls get stolen by the thief in order to kind of take over the kingdom. And then he also has to recruit the help of the kind of true um, villain of the piece, the mighty One-Eye. Yeah, this is where... One-Eye is basically a desert despot who uh, conquers nations. And this is where it gets a little, like dark <laughs> yeah if you if um if you are gonna make dizzy comparisons it's basically attila the hun mm-hmm. from mulan mm-hmm. just a, a a a monstrous horde um, from some far off land <laughs> that is uh threatening the kingdom but john you haven't even mentioned our storyline involving the cobbler oh yes of course so the cobbler gets spared by uh the princess and uh she takes a shine to him exactly she's making eyes and this is where the kind of logical disconnect we have mm-hmm. is that uh a zigzag dis- detests the cobbler because as he's marching into the city he uh, attack falls on his path and his uh unfurling feet step on it mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's his initial reason for hating the cobbler. However, we need an emotional kind of reason to propel the story forward. And it's not until, like, 30 minutes later that he reveals, like, yes, I'll marry the princess, and that's how I will gain power. <laughs> um, but it's as far as we know, it's because uh, he put that tack in his path, and he had a, a, a millisecond of pain that he hates the cobbler and wants to see him thrown in prison and executed. Yeah, but he's also, so like, like, that much of an asshole, let's be real. Yeah, okay. That he would, that's... like, and again, like, the whole point of that opening scene is to show what an ego he has. Like, he literally has servants rolling out carpet for him, rolling around bringing up carpet again so that his feet never have to touch the ground and also again fun character design his shoes have the little like curly toes and they stretch out whenever he steps that's that's a fun little detail it's fun it's full fun little details so i think this movie uh is reward uh, rewards you for frequent rewatches but you're right um obviously tack is not exactly a super active protagonist in his own story, but I do want to give him credit because unlike The Dark Crystal, which we we watched last week, um, Tack does actually have some agency and does actually make some decisions. Eventually, he is roped into helping the princess find this witch who, again, is the one who I think gave them the original prophecy or at least would be able to help them uh, stop the mighty one-eye when he decides to conquer the land or whatnot. And you're right, like, yeah, he has more agency in the fact that he's confronted with an obstacle. Mm-hmm. Later in the story, he's locked in a prison. Like, how the heck am I going to get out of this prison? Oh, I'll file away the bars with my trusty file. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> and he integrates to basically being an audience surrogate. Like, wow, look at the uh, stupid thief who, after 50 attempts to get the the three balls off the minaret, like, finally does it. Great. <laughs> But then, as you said, he's roped into a journey, and this is clear. It, it's clear that a producer came in and said, well, to appease the market, we have to have him follow a journey. Mm-hmm. And that just demonstrates to me that this was not a well-thought-out entertainment product. Mm. Like, yes, as you said, one of the best sequences is that chase like through through the whole palace with all these checkerboard patterns going by the introduction of the grand vizier when all these characters are pulling like around the red carpet and furling it mm-hmm. as his shoes like you know stretch out yards in front of him like that's all great but it needs a, a an emotional structure to frame it on something to keep me invested and that's the problem is, is that the movie doesn't have that mm. like I, I got frustrated after like the fifth attempt like it doesn't even follow like th- there have to be rules and there's that famous rule of thirds where you know 
you, you try something three times, and then on the third time, it pays off. Mm. Like, it, it basically takes six times for the thief to finally get the three balls off the minaret. And he doesn't even get them. They they kind of bounce around the courtyard and it lists some chaos. But, yeah. like, I got frustrated the, when it wasn't... And that's not even the only time he steals the balls, because he also steals them when uh, the mighty one-eye actually starts trying to conquer the land. So Yes, and I, and I got frustrated when it wasn't following the rules or... Uh, uh, basically placating to me, a.k.a. the market, <laughs> the audience of this movie. So, Oh, it didn't follow the standard story structure. It, t- it, it, it exactly. took too many chances. And that's, and that's my fault for being conditioned by <laughs> our capitalistic system into uh, being a consumer and expecting uh, and having certain expectations for what a story is. Mm-hmm. But I could just as easily uh, blame Richard Williams for not knowing exactly what he was doing. Like he just had this creative—he just had these creative visions and he just threw them out there, like like uh, like vomit on a, on a London street after a hard night of partying. He just threw his his leftover kebab and 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 pints out on the streets. <laughs> But I think this is what also kind of puts it in stark contrast to uh, The Dark Crystal, which we watched last week, is the fact that I think it makes up for it just on the sheer amount of spectacle and set pieces. Like, again, we talked about the uh, palace escape sequence with the thief, but then also the kind of final climax with, uh, you know, the gigantic war machine that One Eye has and how that whole thing just kind of, like, falls apart. And it's just, it does go on a little too long. The sequence is a little kind of ungainly. I can, but yes, you can have your little criticisms for that, too. You can have your praises in the fact that, it, yes, it's beautifully animated. Mm-hmm. Like, the amount of the amount of soldiers and it feels like the story is kind of finally coming to a conclusion when the one-eye army um, encroaches on the kingdom. However, the logical part of your brain says, oh, you know what would have been smart of this army? If they didn't have all their weapons pointed at one another. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Because Tack, our our humble little cobbler, is prophesized to, like, you know, uh, a Tack, you know, a little wordplay, a Tack can can simply uh, switch this whole battle uh, on its head. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. He he flings attack at this giant war machine that the One Eye Army has uh, assembled, and wouldn't you know it, it completely makes it discombobulated and throws it all out of proportion and gets destroyed. Mm-hmm. Like the the catapults, like fling their own soldiers and they shoot arrows at one another. And yeah, I don't think the sequence is finished because, as far as you can tell, it looks like the. The one eyed army is just cardboard cutouts like falling <laughs> off of platforms and being shoved aside by by giant bulldozers, but in in the most Monty Python esque sequences. Yes. But uh, 
<laughs> well, I think that was also maybe intentional, like the fact that the uh, soldiers are paper cutouts, that they're literally just kind of like, A, because, I mean, thinking about it, it's pretty gruesome, the number of people who die in this final sequence, but also, like, yeah, there's also the fact that uh, you look at the normal palace guards, they're also kind of like paper cutouts, they're also kind of very flat and two-dimensional, and they kind of, like, shimmy and shake like a piece of paper, so maybe that was, I think that was maybe intentional. It does do feel unfinished like it needed better color grading or something like that but um yeah i thought i still think it was a great sequence not just because of the huge spectacle of this you know rube goldberg-esque machine falling apart but also going back to the thief who manages to get those three magic balls and you know he i'm gonna push no i'm gonna push back on you i'm gonna push back on why do you hate this sequence as well (laughs) why do you hate fun (laughs) so john use the word fun Mm mm-hmm but here's the thing. I'm not just watching for fun. I'm watching to learn something. Oh, All right? okay. Oh. And here's what I here's what I want. I, I don't just want a delicious meal for my eyes. I want a delicious meal for my body. And and what that means is steaks. Mm. So the problem with this the story is that yes, the thief is our wily coyote uh, figure, in which he he gets eternally frustrated by the fact that he can't. Uh, achieve his goal the mm-hmm. same way the wily coyote can he can never get the roadrunner but like that works in a six minute sequence now <laughs> now when you stretch it out over the course of a 140 minute movie mm-hmm. th- uh, like i i didn't care that the thief was literally going through this rube Goldberg contraction because i know that he's gonna wind up fine on the end because of the previous hour like i knew that there was no way that he would come to any bodily harm mm. now as brilliantly as some of the sequences are done like we should commend the animators and the fact that the thief is a, a lowly uh for lack of a better word street rat mm-hmm. and he always has these flies these dirty flies buzzing around his head yeah those those are like genuinely somebody had to hand draw the animation there's no computers back in between 1974 and 1993 when this movie was animated so somebody had to painstakingly animate all those flies in Mm -hmm. that's fine but when you tie it to nothing emotionally where the thief has no backstory no real want for these uh every object of his uh every object of his desire then like like what's the point that's what i was that's what i was wondering as he's as he's being flung from one end of the swarm machine to the other and then spiraling down the staircase and then you know being shot through the arrow <laughs> the arrow shoot and all this other stuff i'm like what's the point no <laughs> like you've already delivered it's... me an hour of eye candy and and i've already grown bored of that so Tell, I mean, tell me something else. Tell me something more. That's there what I was, was still. That's... I felt like there was still tension of. It was almost like the Three Stooges thing with the uh, ladder. Like you know, you know, someone's going to get hit eventually, and so because the thief has been kind of been put upon this whole time, he hasn't really succeeded. He's been flushed down several toilets and you know been bumped on the head and gotten beaten up. There is a chance that it's like, and eh, maybe he will get hit with a giant cannonball. Maybe he will be you know he like a huge structural collapse onto him. But instead, he always nearly escapes, and that's where the fun of it is. You know, no, it's no, almost uh, Buster Keaton-esque, I'd say. Well, yeah, well, yeah it's inspired by our favorite uh, silent movie-era heroes. Mm-hmm. But then it just has this, this the, the grand punchline, the one that angered me the most, is he finally arrives at the foot of the cobbler with his, th- his three balls. He's seen the frustration, he causes it, and he just goes, eh, not worth it, <laughs> and walks away. <laughs> I think that's funny. I think that was funny. I, uh, well, yeah, again, it's a great cosmic joke. Make us confront the, uh, the, the, 
the grand illusion of our own interests and wants <laughs> with our with our long pointless lives. But yeah, I just it, it annoyed me to no end. So oh, okay, yeah, this is this is this is an, an infuriating experience. I, I, even if it was finished, I wasn't sure I would enjoy it. Oh, of course you wouldn't enjoy it because you're no fun and you have no love yeah. for animation. <laughs> you, you you're you're a fuddy duddy and you have no love for the craft. Yeah, because I live in the real world, okay? Why didn't they use real people? Why didn't they use exactly. costumes and film? Use a connection to a real world so you no. can connect to, I don't know, real people? Not film is imaginary. Medium. Film is an abstract is concept. World? No. Nah. No. Yeah. Wrong. Yeah. It's not real, yeah. so it's stupid. Not real. But John, it needed a human connection. Nah. It needed a reason... Richard Williams basically needed a moral to his story, or something that had some value uh, to the yeah, audience. Yeah, stealing is wrong. Okay, that's the ultimate moral <laughs> of the movie. Okay, does the thief really learn that, or does he realize the uh, the the uselessness of the object of which he's trying to steal? Um, which is it? Eh, Masamenos. Uh, film film <laughs> scholars will be uh, will be uh, debating that for years to come. I'm sure. Yes, Kesara Sara. Yep. Um, <laughs> no, I got to be honest. I didn't enjoy it in its current state. I, no, okay. I'm not sure. In what state I would enjoy the Thief of the Cobbler? Um, yes, there are those liminal thrills of, of the just gorgeous animation that Richard Williams and his team put together. Um, his temporary team, in which he um, <laughs> fired and rehired and multiple just, times because they exactly weren't up to his yeah, impossible standards. Yeah, and again, it's really impressive. Like there are sequences that genuinely look like three D animation. No, all hand drawn. Mm-hmm. Which Re- really is, impressive stuff. Yeah, hugely impressive. However. Again, I am this insidious word called the market, and there, as as a consumer of this product, I cannot abide by it. I, I give it zero stars on my Yelp review, sir. Oh dear. Oh, yeah. Frank. I met the manager named Richard, and I could I could tell you I was not impressed. Oh, wow. Greg, remember, voting for Bernie and Elizabeth Warren ends capitalism. Okay, so we don't this have to worry fair. about that anymore. Yeah, there right, will right. be no market anymore. Mm-hmm. We're ending God, the free, God, I hope so. ending exactly. the free market it's, world. It's great. It's exactly. It's an insidious word and an insidious concept that we should do away with. But again, in our current state and our current society, in which it it penetrates everything that we, the lens through which we view everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to say, uh, 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 thumbs down. <laughs> Don't uh, enjoy it. <laughs> nah, I thought it was great. I thought it was a masterpiece. And again, it's free on YouTube. So check it out whenever you want. And I mean, it's also, you can find it broken up into, like, 10-minute chunks. So if you have a particular uh, scene that you enjoyed quite immensely, then you can just check out that one. So I think there's no reason why not everyone should see this movie. Just so they can say they experienced it. And I can give you some hearty recommendations for some good weed to smoke while you're watching it, man. Oh, hey It's going to take you to the moon. John, smoking is bad for you, okay? It's sugar edibles. <laughs> sugar is good for you, okay? It's on the Demonstrated food Demonstrated by science. Exactly. <laughs> Just at the very top. Is smoke on the food pyramid? Didn't think so. Okay. No. And it'll set off the smoke alarm in your apartment. <laughs> and your mom will catch you, and she'll give you a, like, an earful, let me tell you. Exactly, yeah. Have you seen Euphoria? Bad. All right. <laughs> Where are bad. the parents? Ugh. Exactly. Outsmarting school administrators, good. <laughs> that was the ultimate lesson of the thief and the cobbler. Where are the parents? Yeah. <laughs> Where are the parents? And the high schoolers are uh, smart and wicked. There you go. So be careful. Speaking of high schoolers, capitalism, and the nightmare hellscape that we all live in, I think that's a perfect segue into our signature ending segment, Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. 
Yes, Spotlight is where we recommend something that we've seen relatively recently or something mm-hmm. that connects to the movie that we watched. John, I'm going to connect it to something that I watched recently. Oh, okay. You're just going to go first. Okay, like you always do. Yes. That's yeah. fine. That's fine. What, what do you, do you want to go first there? I mean, I kind of did. I was trying to lean into it, but okay. <laughs> okay, go ahead then. All right. I, you know, I don't, I don't get to watch a lot of horror movies. Uh, you know, it's not my, per- I, it's not my preferred genre, but uh, I finally, I got a chance horror. to catch up on a horror. newly released horror movie uh, that's horror. now streaming on Hulu. It's the documentary Jawline. Are you familiar with this documentary? Oh, yeah. <laughs> John, you played a trick on me. This is not a horror movie. However, it's it's a horror of ennui in our current, <laughs> exactly. uh, our current cultural moment. Because this is, this is a documentary ostensibly profiling a, a, a young teen intent on stardom. Is that right? That is correct. It follows Austin Tester. Um, his yeah. name is spelt with a Y, Austin, um, who dreams of being a... Uh, Instagram influencer. It's very weird. He spends most of this time, most of his time, on a site called YouNow, which is basically just like uh, it's like Twitch, but instead you just broadcast through your screen just to your followers, and you know you connect with them, and then people can like video chat you, and it's like, oh my god, I'm talking to Austin. Like it's it's so weird. It is so like cringingly weird. But the 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 strange thing is, is like the the filmmaker doesn't try to like imply whether this is good or bad it's just like this is the way things are now and where the kind of crippling ennui of the picture comes in is the fact that austin does not have a lot of prospects and really the reason why he's latched on to this life as a social media maven is because like what else he's gonna do he lives in bumfuck tennessee like he will barely be able to finish high school at this rate and for what like a retail job at plato's closet yeah he does he doesn't have a lot of huge problems. yeah but he's handsome and has a good jawline so what else do you need he's a white male with hair the sky's the limit <laughs> exactly and so then we get into the fact that he eventually goes on he hooks up with like this this tour group like i think it's called like Pomcon, Popcon, I don't know, but like other yeah. people who look just like him. They're all so interchangeable. And it's always, it's strangely homoerotic, like the way all these 16 year olds all kind of look the same and just kind of like hang out shirtless together. So <laughs> um, <laughs> that's on you. That's on you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So there is the, uh, if the movie has someone close to a villain, it would be Michael West, Michael Weist, who is this, basically this manager. Um, he's just as young as probably the kids that are, you know, managing him, but that's kind of his advantage. He says, like, do you want an old guy trying to tell you how social media works? No, you want someone your age. And okay. even though he doesn't uh, directly manage Tyler, or, sorry, Austin, um, he he ends up having his own little group and trying to, like, manage their careers. But then you get into the whole, like, uh, predatory aspect of this whole genre this whole like career because again like how much is he getting paid versus how much are they getting paid and obviously yeah i don't want to yeah i don't want to paint with a broad brush but mm-hmm. agents are um how do i describe it a remora on the um <laughs> <laughs> are, are basically uh leeching off of the talent or so-called talent of people and yeah it seems like this is this is a uh, particular figure of a uh, in that vintage oh yes absolutely and his complete lack of self-awareness knowing that how he's coming off in this film is just so bizarre and it's fascinating mm-hmm. that it's like he's obsessed with image but yet he doesn't see what an absolute cretin he is <laughs> yeah, okay <laughs> and it's funny as the film group progresses like there is um kind of a transition where it's like two of his uh, uh protégés have kind of disappeared 
and then you kind of hit you hear the head you see the headlines kind of pop up it's like they sue him for like not unpaid royalties and you know they claim him of like sexually abuse like sexually harassing them and stuff like that and it's just like Ew. the whole time he's like you know defending himself he's like you know they're like trying to smear my name and you know that's all i have in this industry but it's fine i'll bounce back you know it's like <laughs> fucking just it's a weird movie but it's it's oddly fascinating and it's it's done in a very unique style it's dreamlike and hypnotic and there's no voiceover it's or the only voiceover kind of comes from the subjects themselves and i do love the fact that it takes a very kind of earnest um unjudgmental eye to the way these people live and kind of their hopes and dreams because again who doesn't want to be famous you know who do, okay. like and you're 16 you're supposed to be kind of dumb so <laughs> um it's a really fascinating movie and uh, i i highly suggest you check it out okay now i have not seen the movie but i have seen a survey mm-hmm. in which uh what career um the typical 13 to 16 year old in both the u.s and uk want mm-hmm. and uh their top choice was youtuber now if that fact fills you with despair this is the movie for you <laughs> Absolutely, but again, yeah. like, um, yeah, like, what what are these kids gonna do? Actually, just like develop a talent? No, of course not. I can get famous yeah. by, you know, being rich and cute girls will like me. Exactly. I, it's, to some extent, I feel the same way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My love language is obviously the praise and appreciation of others. Um, mm, there you go. <laughs> yeah, verbal affirmation of others. So I I can understand uh, where these kids are coming from. Um, however, I wish. Maybe they had the life experience to really um, kind of chase that those passions and and really push them to develop some sort of actual talent, uh, mm-hmm. whether it be podcasting, which obviously I have in spades. But um, <laughs> but I, I I wish they had the experience to really kind of sharpen those skills and that focus on on what exactly they want that fame for. Uh, it seems like the docu- do- documentary doesn't really like try to push them in that direction, but does demonstrate uh how empty this pursuit of fame can be exactly and is that I fair think, okay yeah and the other thing too is like they're not looking at it like in terms of long term like at one point someone does make the point it's like do you think you're still going to be doing this when you're 25 when you're 30 like do you think <laughs> teenage girls are still going to find you attractive <laughs> yeah oh heck i was a i was a day camp counselor and i i saw that transition quick like after i turned 30 it's like yeah these kids don't find me cool anymore and won't listen to me so oh yeah like they were ever going to do that in the first place yeah, i think that's did. really that's they really amb- yeah greg come on come i on. was cool i was counselor greg yeah <laughs> first of all why were you doing that when you were 30 greg okay <laughs> that, that because i volunteer and i care okay <laughs> stupid why would you do these kids off the streets from doing drugs? Okay. Why are you doing something for free when you could get paid, Greg? Okay. I, this, we live weird. in a market economy. This is what the theme of the episode is. Come on. You're right. You're right. You're right. Foolishness. Foolishness. Yeah. John, I want to get to that market economy. Okay. Let's and, do it. And, and, and really interrogate what people will pay for. Mm-hmm. I've, got, I've got a double bill of movies that I want to recommend. Or not recommend, but at least talk about for yes. this spotlight segment my favorite kind of spotlights <laughs> yes it's a it's a double bill themed around one extraordinary leading man named gerard butler <laughs> oh boy <laughs> yeah did someone catch up on the fallen trilogy yeah indeed they did um nice. before that uh we looked at our on-demand options and we caught up on another masterpiece starring him called geostorm oh yeah i now, i've seen this movie too i think uh <laughs> we put it on in the background yeah. And stuff happened in it. I know Hong Kong blows up from a gas explosion at one point. 
And that's yes. all I can remember about the movie. Yeah. <laughs> let me let me explain what happens to you, John. People talk over Skype. Okay. And that's it. No, right. that is the extent of the movie. Uh, this is a, a great, uh, just a wonderful masterpiece directed by Dean Devlin. He's like, I don't need that Roland Emmerich hack. Mm. Like, I don't need him to <laughs> to replicate the success of Independence Day and the other disaster movies that we did in the 90s. I'm going to basically do the th- same thing 20 years later. And, uh, yeah, he failed. He sucked. <laughs> the yeah. movie blows. The movie um, is really bad. Because, again, yes. I can't remember anything about it. Nothing stuck with well, me at all. Again, exactly. Because the only thing that happens is people talk over Skype. And you have to accept the fact that Gerard Butler and one Jim Sturgis are brothers, even though they're about a decade apart in age. <laughs> at least that. If not, 15 years. <laughs> Which is why, John, I want to ask you... As someone attracted to uh, one of the genders, mm-hmm. um, which is a spectrum, how do you feel about Gerard Butler? Like, when you see this man, what, what do you feel? Um, I feel that someone should put that bear back in a cage. I don't know why hey, someone <laughs> let... John Kinky. All right, go on. <laughs> I mean, the, the argument I've heard, this is someone else's argument, not mine, that Gerard kind of shot up a little quickly and really did not get the kind of proper training or experience that a normal actor of his caliber would get at this point in his career. Yeah, so, I should point out the yeah, I should point out the two movies that I watched of his. He has to speak an American accent. He's Scottish born, so mm-hmm. he has a Scottish accent. But as a result he kinda of talks out the side of his mouth. Yes. <laughs> And um, so it's really incongruous in Gods of Egypt, let me tell you. Yeah. So so it's it, it's wrong to that wrong to that extent, but also I think at this point he's he's nearing uh, his mid forties, so not in, maybe not exactly in the best of shape anymore, and now has to support sport a beard and yeah just. It, it probably doesn't work as a visual standpoint, like, like not not somebody who who I aspire to be, <laughs> let's say that, and and that really comes to the fore in the last of the the wonderful Has Fallen trilogy, Angel Has Fallen, which mm. I caught in theaters um, because we have to use that AMC Stubbs membership somehow, and <laughs> August was a pretty dire month for movies, so we saw Angel Has Fallen. Um, I haven't seen the two prior movies, that's fine. Don't bother doing your homework. You can jump right into this one. In, which follows the travails of Mike Banning, uh, a Secret Service agent who's now suffering from migraines. Like, oh, through all his experiences, oh. he's he's got a he's got a personal folly, John, a backstory. <laughs> See, and this is why you needed to watch the first two. I mean, where did these headaches come from? Where are these yeah. migraines coming from? Yes, and it was from uh, if I if I understand the second movie, it's from shooting uh, Arabic uh, people and saying uh, go back to fuck Edistan. Oh. Uh, I believe that's an actual line in the second movie. Wow, <laughs> goodness, goodness gracious! It's probably just as much worth your time as Angel has fallen. Okay, uh, but. Uh, he is uh, a Secret Service agent, Mike Banning, who uh, the most important uh, interest in this universe is. Will Mike Banning get to be the head of the Secret Service? That's what's most. That's what's most important. He literally is protecting the president on a on a vacation, and the first and foremost on the president's mind is he asks he asks Mike Banning directly. So, will you accept that position of the head of the Secret Service once you're offered it? The president, who probably has a million other things he has to worry about, he's worried about his old friend Mike Banning whether he'll accept that job as the head of the Secret Service. Hey, he's on vacation, okay? He has nothing to worry about but his personal friends' lives, okay? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Which also demonstrates how out of time this film is, like, <laughs> as if the office of the president is worth is something worth preserving. In 
anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> and not a, not a vestigial figurehead position uh, conceived by a bunch of uh, old uh, slave owners wow. from 240 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I said it. Yes. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. Okay. Yes, I know. I, I'm, a, I'm a tanky now, and uh, I believe there should be a communist revolution in this country, and we should burn the White House to the ground, as the British did in the War of 1812. But anyway... Okay. Um, so, other than that, it's a very competently done action film. Like, I kind of understood the action from that standpoint. Uh, it takes a while to get going. Like, it's, it's got to establish all this backstory of um, of, of Mike Banning and, and the intrigue that's going on. Like, yes, he's got these personal foibles in that he's suffering from headaches. That's dropped immediately once he's actually framed for murder <laughs> and has to go on the run. <laughs> I mean... If only the doctor recommended that. Have you tried getting framed for murder? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's 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 a better diagnosis. It's a it's a better treatment than laughter, I'd say. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> Be- better than the clown Pagliacci. Mm-hmm. But anyway. <laughs> Again, that's all thrown out the window. But uh, I gotta say, there's some great sequences in there. My favorite was um, when he commandeers a big rig and has to go on the chase, and he actually uses his cargo to kind of swipe away the cars and the. They drive down. I thought the whole movie was shot in Georgia, as every American movie is. It's mm-hmm. actually shot in England and Budapest. So oh. they they do use yeah. I mean, how the, do they the, make Budapest look like the American countryside? I, I, well, again, it's just for it's it's just forest and dirt roads. Oh, okay. What else do you need? Yeah, really. <laughs> okay, fair point. And so, like that sequence is really done well, but the rest of the production design is just like gray on gray on gray. I didn't really appreciate that. Uh, where the movie really excels is casting. Because people were probably wondering, with the original, like, Olympus Has Fallen, how the hell did they recruit all these A-list talent into this, uh, gar- into this schlock garbage? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same here, because, uh, spoiler alert, if you really don't want to be spoiled, even though it does spoil itself, which I'll get to. Okay. Um, but when he's on the run, he has to go find, uh, he has to go recruit aid. And where does he do it? With his father, old cranky Nick Nolte. Oh, boy. <laughs> who lives in the West Virginia countryside, um, who's a bit paranoid about the government tracking his, tracking his location. So he lives off the grid. And that's great. And his solution, once, uh, once, uh, evil private military contractors do encroach on him. His solution? Explosions. Nothing in this movie can't be solved with an explosion. Explosion here, explosion there. Explosions everywhere. And they oh. do get a lot of mileage out of stuntmen uh, being fl- being <laughs> flung <laughs> out of the way of explosions. So, if there is an Oscar for stunt for stunt performers, which there should be, uh, I believe Angel Has Fallen belongs in the nomination list. So, See, I was hoping that they'd go for like a Rambo kind of thing where it's like, we don't need your fancy guns to take yeah. The U.S. military, we just need our wits and these sticks, you know. And then I, I, I thought that was the case too, but we were only like 40 minutes into the movie at this rate. Okay, so yeah, (laughs) yeah, so we couldn't do our Skyfall ending where you know (laughs) our our old-fashioned hero and his elderly uh, (laughs) member and his elderly cohorts actually fight off the bad private military contractors on the bad guys and high-tech. Yeah, exactly, and high-tech supervillains. So got it. Yeah. I do appreciate the fact that the movie doesn't even try to disguise the fact that his uh, his old mentor, um, the one heading the private military contractor, he's played by Danny Houston. Mm-hmm. They, they don't even disguise the fact that he's the actual villain. Um, it's kind of framing Mike ba- Mike Banning uh, for this crime. Mm-hmm. They just cut to him, like, uh, uh, cavorting with the, uh, the, the real bad guys, just saying, like, yeah, we'll get him. Like, it's just... <laughs> 
It's not even like like a reveal. Like say, um, you remember um, Sean Bean's 006, like emerging out of the shadows and Golden Eye. Yeah, remember exactly. That? Yeah, I, I was expecting that. They they didn't even bother with that. They just cut to him uh, somewhere off, <laughs> off twirling his mustache. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Can't wait no, to do evil. No, John, he doesn't have a mustache. He has a three-day stubble, which oh, is this okay. movie's M.O. Yeah, got it. Okay. Other than Nick Nolte's great white beard, so. All right. I, th- I think for action movie fans, there's a lot to lot to like, but you can do better. I mean. Really? Really? Yeah, I, <laughs> maybe not in late August in 2019, but uh, I, don't, I don't know. Like, don't, just eat your eat, uh, AMC Stubbs membership if you could. I don't know. Maybe you want to see It Chapter 2 or, heck, uh, The Goldfinch. No, let's save it for that. Mm-hmm. Not, not, maybe not Angels Fallen. It's fine. It's it's the perfect. It's the ideal VOD movie. Um, can't say I hated it, but you know you can do better. I look forward to watching it on TNT some afternoon. Yes, <laughs> sounds like a perfect and, TNT movie to me. And if you are a Gerard Butler fan, if you're like, yes, Gerard Butler's in a movie, namely this or Den of Thieves or one of the <laughs> other uh, Has Fallen uh, uh, movies, go ahead and email us. Let us know what the heck you find in this guy. This this. Uh, this this old creaky man um, <laughs> who can barely act, who just yeah. scowls his way through movies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, acting is not a requirement. I'd say more like like attractiveness. Like, do you want to be this person? <laughs> I mean, like, I, I can w- even see like Chuck Norris's appeal, but this, like, yeah, I'm just I, I'm at a loss. I'm no, sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, if he could play up his Scottishness a lot more, I think it would ma- it would you know help him stand out. But uh, unfortunately, oh, probably. Can't do that. Yeah. yeah, it's a pity. Yeah, but hey, yeah. If you can also reach out to us on social media with all your Gerard Butler love and fan mail and uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, deviant art that you've, you've made over the years, <laughs> yeah, go ahead and send it to us. We're uh, at Aspiring Snobs on Twitter mm-hmm. and Facebook.com/slash Aspiring Snobs on Facebook. Yep, and you can uh, follow us on Instagram at Aspiring Snobs. Oh yeah, yes, and. Our email is aspiringsnaps at gmail.com if you would like to defend Jar- Gerard Butler. <laughs> uh, you think he's daddy or something like that. And, you know, says, uh, hey, senpai, notice me. <laughs> you can do that. I mean, I don't think he'll be reaching out to us directly. I can only hope. Uh, maybe we have to call him a bed bug or something, and then maybe he'll reach out to us. So Yes, <laughs> Try absolutely. to get us fired. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or his agent. Yeah, who, who the hell is he going to copy, though? <laughs> uh, iTunes? There you go. Get them taking us off or something. <laughs> Hey, that's right. We are on iTunes and Spotify and yep. Stitcher. It's not all iTunes anymore, platforms. Greg. It's Apple Podcasts. Oh, sorry. Whatever. Whatever. Yeah. But the hell. You know where it is. All right. Go <laughs> ahead. Rate us five stars, please. Yep. We feel like we've given you a quality episode. So Exactly. And you'll help others find us. And then with others, we can build this aspiring snobs community together. Exactly. More people will listen to the show. We'll start a conversation. Everybody loves conversation. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Uh, well, Greg. Since people yeah. love conversation so much, I guess we should tease them with what conversation we'll be having next week. Yes. Now, as as we've already done with these past two weeks, kind of breaking with format a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because we looked at uh, two straight creative follies, in spite <laughs> of how much John enjoyed The Thief and the Cobbler. Uh, we're going to look at another one in which uh, three wonderful filmmakers had a blank check to do whatever the hell they wanted. Mm-hmm. 
and how. And what they came up with was a glorious spoof movie called Top Secret, one that I've wanted to enjoy for a long time, and now I'm using the podcast as an excuse to see it. So, all right. I mean, I've, we haven't had a lot of good track record when it comes to episodes about comedies, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this movie because the Zucker Brothers okay. obviously always, uh, always delight. Yeah. Well, the three of them together, um, mm. not the one who got his brain poisoned by Fox News <laughs> oh, and took no. a hard right turn <laughs> and did the execrable An American Carol, <laughs> in which uh, a Michael Moore figure uh, realizes how great America is and uh, slavery pers- should persist, maybe. <laughs> Played by Chris Farley's brother, you know. Yeah, that was a talented family, right? <laughs> exactly, yes. Comedy's hereditary. Everyone said this. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's enough for this week. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, I'm going to do it out the side of my mouth, like when Gerard Butler, Mm -hmm. keep aspiring. (laughs) Or I'll use the uh, catchphrase from uh, Angel is Fallen. Shit! (laughs) Fuck! (laughs)